The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and guten tag and welcome to Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts. Check those out at frankenmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frankenmuth Historical Museum. This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Auf Wiedersehen. So hey guys, welcome to our next episode of Historians and Lederhosen. Um, So I'm here with Malcolm and Nathan, and today I think we're going to talk a little bit about what brought people to our country. So as you know, our country was a country of immigrants for a little while. It still is. And we're just going to talk about why people are here, especially in Frankenmuth, especially in Michigan, and then just a couple of other immigration stories. So this is our acapella choir here at Historians in Lederhosen. We were led by the um, brilliant musician himself, Malcolm Cottle. <laughs> uh, someone brought in mics, and we're having a little too much fun with them. So um, It's okay. The museum isn't open for another hour. <laughs> we did get the copyright for that, just so everyone knows. <laughs> it was for educational purposes, so it is actually okay under public domain because this was all for educational purposes. Uh, we are public historians, as we have talked about in the past, so come and fight me, copyright laws. <laughs> Hot right. take from Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still haven't got my later hosen either. You guys? Dude, Malcolm, I'm still you, yours were on back order. Still on back order, yeah. Uh, they apparently, uh, my credit card won't go through or something like this, so <sighs> still on back so, order. So um, my Venmo is Garrett-Lewis18, <laughs> and if anyone wants to start paying me... <laughs> Garrett's going to start crowdfunding through the podcast <laughs> to fund his internship. Effective. Now I know why he wanted to start the podcast. Exactly. Now I know. So, all right. Like Garrett said, uh, today we're talking about uh, immigration history. Um, so I think we'll start with Frank Muth's immigration history, a, a bit about it, and we'll go deeper into this into other podcasts later. So we'll just give you a real brief overview. Um, so there was this man named Wilhelm Lohe. He was a Lutheran pastor over in Germany. Um, and he sort of organized the first settlers to come over. Uh, there were 15 settlers that came over in 1845. Um, and Lohe, he wrote to Frederick Weineken, another Lutheran pastor that was kind of working in Fort Wayne area, made it up to Michigan every now and then. And he wrote of this sort of need to have um, these dedicated Lutheran parishioners come over and kind of evangelize about the faith. Um and so Leahy recognized that, and he decided to organize these first settlers. He organized the purchase of land here um, and what eventually became Frankenmuth and trained a, a pastor named August Kramer. Um, and so the first 15 settlers came. They, they came over um, 
on a boat called the Caroline in 1845. Uh, it was very much a religious mission for them as well. They, they bought into that as well. Um, before they even came over on the Caroline, they actually met weekly to um, for like Bible study, just to pray and, and things like that to really try to uh, strengthen themselves spiritually for the mission. Um, and so, yeah, they, they came over here. Um, you can also see then a lot of, a lot of their faith, um, in like original letters that we still have, um, of them writing back to families and stuff. It's always very, um, faith focused and things like that. So, um, do y'all have anything to add about, uh, Frankenmuth's immigration history? I think the, the religious Im- or the religious aspect of this immigration story is obviously the most important. Like this was founded as a Lutheran mission, but one other thing, a couple of other things that I like to kind of point out and bring it into a little more modern scheme of thinking is when we go on mission trips as like 21st century people, we go on mission trips for like one week, two weeks to another country. And we then come back to our own home. So like we also kind of have to think about, what would make 15 people leave their homes and leave them forever, immigrate to an entire, entirely different country? So obviously they're very fervent religious people that are really committed to their cause. They want to evangelize their religion, but also in the region of Germany that they lived, which very complicated story, I'll get into it later. Um, but they lived in a region called Franconia that was in kind of their parents' lifetime, it was absolved into the kingdom of Bavaria. So they had a lot of different cultural and ethnic um, kind of factors combined with a different, like little, not enjoying their lifestyle in Bavaria. So on top of their religious aspects and just being really committed to their religion, there was a practice called impartable inheritance that was practiced. And it was a practice especially hard in Franconia where the first son of a family got all of their father's inheritance and the rest of their siblings got none, especially if they were women, they got none to begin with. Um, but a lot of these first 15 settlers of Frankenmuth were maybe second or third sons. So when their parents died, they weren't going to get any money. They were going to have to work for their, their older brother and stuff like that. So this is a really easy factor as to why they would want to leave. Also, since marriage was a higher um, financial cost in that period, they weren't going to be able to get married because their parents or their family wasn't going to pay for their dowry for their wife. So when they were able to leave, one of the, the coolest stories of their immigration story is the first, um, the first pastor of this Frankenmuth settler group, August Kramer. He married three couples and then himself on the boat because the he minute- He married himself? He did marry himself. How did he do that? Um, he's a pastor. He can do what he wants. <laughs> but he, um, yeah, he married the three couples and, oh, I get what you're saying. Ah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> he practiced his own, his own marriage ceremony. But yes, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not great at words, guys. Um, but no, so he, he married the three couples and then had performed his own marriage ceremony because when they got on the boat and they left Germany, they were finally able to be married, which in Germany, they really wouldn't have been able to do. So without the land, without the land key, right. They needed the land in order to be able to marry and support a family and stuff. And so, Mm -hmm. um, without any of that, they were kind of left without, um, literally a home or a place to live. Mm -hmm. So, well, and talk about a gamble of a journey too. I mean, not only are you leaving behind the life you've known, but uh, it's not like what we do now where we just get in the car for three hours and then take a plane and then we're there and like no one worries about that trip anymore. But I mean, this trip was, 
eight, you know, 1800s on yeah. a boat, you don't know if you're actually going to make it to the other end. I mean, you hope, but they, I mean, that's knew, yeah. quite a journey, quite a, a reckless and uh, dangerous journey to take. I yeah. Mean, and they knew those risks going in and still did it. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Which uh, I think that really highlights like the religious aspect. They were really committed to that. They, they knew that like this journey might not end well for them but they were fully committed that they're like this is our this is our mission we're here to spread our religion and we would rather potentially die than not do this they wanted to be they wanted to be or that helped their their conscious and they made them feel good about themselves and made them feel like they were doing the right thing and like one of the nicest or not nicest one of the toughest parts of that story is like the ineptitude of their captain on the Caroline. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> he may or may not have been under the influence. <laughs> All the time. Um, <laughs> like beaching the ship on the first day, like um, <laughs> providing Whoops. providing My bad, guys. water that was tainted with smallpox. How do you not get off like right then and there? Like the first day, you don't, you're not even off the continent. Like you're still on a river. He, he hadn't even left the continent and he beached the ship on the first day. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I'd be like, uh, I'm going to get a cab <laughs> and they hitch another ride. They're leaving with like such, um, such limited resources that like when, when you have to stay in Bremen for an extra day, mm-hmm. you've already like cut your resources in half and you're coming to a new country and you're like, Hey, please let us in. We have no money. And there's 15 of us, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that first, like those first 15 too, we have letters that they sent back, like that uh, pastor Kramer sent back to Lohi where, uh, he was giving advice about like more settlers, like what they should bring, like what worked, what didn't work, um, even like down to the type of wine that they were suggested <laughs> to bring because red wines tended to not help uh, the flow <laughs> of, of things and uh, actually made them a little constipated. So he said like, tell mm-hmm. tell the, the next round to bring white wine because it mm-hmm. goes through the system a little bit better on this weird journey that we're having. So it's like so many variables, like you just can't imagine. And like right now, what? It's like a 12, 12 hour car ride from Michigan to New York, give or take a yep, couple hours. Probably about. What? And so they land in... in they, um, it took them 53 days when they left the port yeah. Um, to get to New York, just to get and to then New York. another month after that to get inland to Frankenmuth to the Frankenmuth area, yeah, yeah. To the Cass River, like, and that's three insane. months, like three, yeah. Think about like the couple of things they bring. Like when we give tours, we talk we talk to kids and we're like, "What would you bring on your vacation?" And they're always like, "Games, the iPad." But no, they had to bring literally their entire livelihood. And then the the just strangest thing is they brought two massive bronze church bells, and they were like, "How do you get this from New York?" to Michigan in only a month. That's where I'm at. I'm like, <laughs> Pastor Kramer threw him on his back and he went, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing this. We've come this far. <laughs> Little known fact, Pastor Kramer had massive thighs. <laughs> <laughs> he never skipped leg day. <laughs> All right. So, as as part of this, as we're talking a little bit about uh, Frank Muth's immigration origins, um, we also wanted to share kind of our own family history and maybe our own communities where we came from. Um, so, Garrett, would you like to start with that? Yeah. So, um, just a little back backstory for me. I go to Saginaw Valley, and that's here in mid Michigan. But I'm originally from the Upper Peninsula, which. Um, completely unrelated to my family story, but that in its own is kind of a little bit of an immigration story. The UP is entirely different than mid-Michigan and people don't believe me when I say that, but it is. But like in terms of my family, my my great-grandparents on both sides ended up um, immigrating to the US from 
On my dad's side, it was the Czech Republic. And well, at the time it was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which feeds into the story of why they left. But, um, and then on my mother's side, it was Poland, which also feeds into the story of why they left. <laughs> um, but they both came over at like, both sides of my family came to the US at the outset of World War One, right before the war broke out in um, Europe. And there was all those factors leading up to this was going to be a very toxic place. This was going, this, these were all these factors leading up to this was going to be the great war. And like, I kind of see that not as strong in the Frankenmuth immigration story, but there are a lot of factors that forced my family, both like both sets of my ancestors to move to the U S because they realized that their life wasn't going to be any better had they stayed longer in Europe. So like for my great grandfather on my dad's side, he was born in Prague. And at the time, um, the Czech Republic wasn't even its own country. It was under the um, rule of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They were ruled by people that were completely ethnically and culturally different than they were. And my, my great-grandfather saw the opportunity to start a new life and be his own person in a different country. And I think that like that's always the light at the end of the tunnel for these immigrant groups, especially during that period of time, the progressive era, when there were so many immigrants coming to the U S is that whether the U S was a good country or not at that time, they realized that in Europe, most of them did not have the opportunities they would have had in the U S and whether they were going to be poor for a while in the U S and have to work like two jobs at the same time or not, they realized that this was going to give them the opportunity to have an actual life for themselves. And then it's kind of the same story for um, my mother's side coming over from Poland where there wasn't much hope. They were um, under Russian rule. They had, to, they had to subject to people who were, again, completely different than them. And the op opportunity to move and leave for America it just presented itself and they did it. So so where did they end up when they came here? Did they end up in Michigan right away? So for um, for my, my dad's side, yes, they came straight to Michigan. They came straight to um, the Grand Rapids area, the West okay. Michigan area. But then for my, um, my mom's side, they bounced around for a really long time. Like they first went to Virginia and then they ended up in like West Virginia and then Ohio and then somehow ended up in West Michigan completely I really don't understand I know that my great-grandfather was just like a traveling like he he was just hopping from job to job doing farm labor and stuff like that but um the the really cool thing was he um he was really young when he came over he he came over with his parents and they were the ones that decided to make him make him uh or not make him they were the ones who decided to move their lives to america and that's why they were jumping around but my my great grandfather his last name is milanowski very polish um and he ended up serving in world war ii he served for the america or the u.s army and he ended up actually fighting in um in poland for a little while and it was i'm sure it was very strange having been born in poland to have to go back and try to fight for a country that you really didn't get to grow up in but having to fight for their their freedom i guess and i think that's pretty cool that's a good story um yeah so i guess i'll just get into my family history i guess um so my dad's side of the family 
originally came from Germany. I want to say roughly early 1900s, if not late 1800s. Uh, my mom's side of the family, uh, their last name is Kenny. They probably dropped the O somewhere. They were from Ireland. <laughs> um, and so Irish immigrants, they uh, uh, potato famine, right? Like that was not good. Um, so that is probably actually what brought a lot of my mother's side of the family over from Ireland was actually the potato famine. Um, and Irish immigrants, they did come a little bit earlier than that to the United States, um, early 1800s, probably 20s, 30s, some did. Um, and they ended up in bigger cities, maybe like New York, Boston, everyone sort of thinks of, um, and even Detroit. Um, once 1825, I think the Erie Canal was completed. And so a lot more kind of left those big hubs like New York and Boston to come to Detroit. Um, and then from there, they eventually sort of wrote back to family and friends. Um, in 1845, was it, I think, the, the potato famine hits um, Ireland, and that left uh, millions of people dead um, within the first five years. And, and so they were looking for a way out, um, and, and they did, and they came to eventually Detroit, and then eventually to a little, um, my family, my mother's side of the family, came to uh, Shepherd, Michigan, um, a little rural area, farm community kind of still. Um, but there was... There was this sort of, uh, this community came together and around their faith a little bit. So my mother's side of the family is, is Catholic, um, and as were a lot of the original um, Irish immigrants that came to Shepherd, um, and they actually built a church called St. Patrick's, and they sort of nicknamed it Irish Town, actually. Um, and, and that church has, it actually was shut down about 10 years ago, I think just because of funding and stuff. Um, but for 150 years, that operator was kind of the central hub uh, for people. And before that, um, there's there's another story that before that church was built, so it was probably 10, 15 years um, after most of the Irish immigrants that St. Patrick's was built. Um, there's another story that kind of shows how important their faith was. So, so this one couple, they had a baby and... Uh, January, I think it was, so kind of in the dead of winter, they walked 40 miles to go get their baby baptized to another pastor that they knew of. Um, so that in itself is just insane, like carrying a kid 40 miles. I mean, and, and oh, it's crazy. I cry about my half mile walk across campus. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got, I've got a one-year-old and she weighs like 25 pounds. Like she, she, she's a tank and so it would take some time to uh oh, i'd have to take some breaks on 40 miles oh man i can't even imagine a mile with her um so so yeah um there were a few other irish families that ended up coming um and so i don't know this sort of just r has a lot of similarities to uh, frankenmuth's origins right you have a very sort of um religious group why, why they weren't pushed out in the same sort of way. Um, their faith was still really important to them, and, and the community sort of developed around this church, uh, St. Patrick's and Shepherd or St. Lawrence here in Frankenmuth. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my family history. Uh, how about you, Malcolm? Um, I mean, yeah, I have a family history, <laughs> but um, and nothing, nothing all that exciting. Um, so I'm originally from Stratford, Ontario, so a lot of my family history is obviously in Canada. A. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, bud. <laughs> Dropping the a bombs real soon there. Uh, 
so so yeah, my uh, my dad's family is originally from mostly Germany. My uh, my grandmother's grandparents would have come over from Germany through Ontario and settled in kind of uh, southwestern Ontario, uh, very uh, farm based as would have been uh, pretty appropriate at the time, um, and then just you know slowly became Canadian. A lot of the uh, a lot of st- you know, Perth, uh, Perth County area where I'm from is predominantly uh, Dutch, German, um, very rural with these kind of like big city, well, not really big city, but city hubs kind of around, uh, but it's a very rural area as Canada tends to be. Uh, so that's my paternal side. My mother's side is actually very American, um, which is what actually kind of I guess in, in a way allowed me to come over here, um, essentially. So, uh, my, my maternal grandfather, Canadian, uh, Scottish heritage, his name was literally Ross McDonald. So, hmm. I mean, that's Love a pretty it. Scottish name. It's, oh, Kenny and McDonald. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> there we go. Old uh, McDonald had a farm. Yeah, yeah, yo. Crickets. Appreciate that contribution, Garrett. Yeah, <laughs> really, really earning uh, earning your paycheck today. We need we need oh, drops. We need. <laughs> oh no, bummer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, in any case, uh, so yeah, uh, the McDonald's side, which was uh, my mother's uh, side, very Canadian, uh, but my um, my maternal grandmother is American. So uh, uh, Papa McDonald was uh, was a preacher. So they actually traveled a lot, and they kind of bounced it between Canada and the U.S. Uh, you know, Pennsylvania, um, Ohio, Michigan, New York, um, and then kind of in and out in Ontario. So that's kind of basically from birth. I've had a very kind of Canadian American, um, background. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of just my general family history. It's really not too, too exciting. My mom does a ton of genealogy, so she'll be ashamed when she listens to this (laughs) because she's told me a lot of it, but I just... Don't retain it. I spend too much time on other people's history to, to actually know my own. So, so that's interesting because it's a little bit of the same um, for me. Not necessarily that I haven't taken the time, but uh, on my dad's side of the family, his family tree is a bit more uh, messy than some others. And so it's... it's uh, and, and he also... Um, has some things he dealt with as, as a kid that like make it difficult for him to talk about his background. And so it, it's tough to get some of this information out of him. And I think that that can be a insight into sort of what historians kind of deal with when you're yeah. tracing or anybody when they're tracing their genealogy is you have to sift through some of these personal stories yeah. and uh, the people themselves to try to get some of this information. And it can be a tough task sometimes. And like on the genealogy, like aspect, um, like it's really hard because even like when I'm trying to explain my own family story, like like both of my grandparents' parents, like both of them are even from different countries themselves. So like I could like trace it back to like five or six different countries that like my family has converged onto into America. And like I'm in a class about Korea right now, and their genealogy system was like implemented through their government and through their um, throughout like all of their history. Like my professor is from Korea and he can tell you 14 generations back on his father's side because that was how important genealogy was to them because your family status decided what jobs you could hold and where you could go inside the country, like where you could end up living and stuff like that. So it's just kind of, it's cool, but also kind of disappointing in the same way that like America, we, we can, we don't have that same sense of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like comprehension about like our, or comprehensiveness about our um, family trees. Like we can, we can trace them back, but like it's a lot harder on our side because of all the different countries that we come from and, and just like converge upon in America. 
I think sometimes people forget that America is kind of an immigrant community in itself. And like, so maybe that speaks a little bit to like people just, yeah, I mean, that just gets into how, how tough it is to, to track these stories and, and what that means for, you know, the rest of the country too. Um, and I wonder if that's some, a part of that is I think somewhat of the American ethos of American exceptionalism is the, the whole the one of the founding principles i think of the american ethos is that it doesn't matter where you come from it doesn't matter who you're related to quote anyone can succeed anyone can live the american dream so to contrast that with the story uh, garrett just told about uh, korean tradition in america it wouldn't be it, theoretically it isn't as important um to most americans who their family members are their their bloodlines or anything like that because in theory anyone can achieve the american dream so it's not maybe not maybe that's um, a reason I'm going to throw out there as to mm. why genealogy isn't quite at at I the center for everyone. Another cool aspect of immigration in America is the way it affects our food in our in our food culture mm-hmm. because, yeah, true. Um, like, America didn't exactly have a, an American cuisine until we had major food corporations come out and start um, creating a more like or cultivating a more like comprehensive American cuisine like. Like when you think of American cuisine, like what would you say? Like, what would a f- firm American food be? Hamburger, pizza. No, not pizza. I know, but like that's yeah. what I think of. Yeah, exactly. When I think of American food. That's what people are probably. Yeah, eat. exactly. And like <laughs> <Hot dog>. one, <laughs> one thing that I found kind of interesting that I learned just recently is like the origin of the pretzel, or like even just the pickle is like. Um, the pretzel comes from Germany and like our pretzel that you can get like any sports game or like, um, or like at a fair, like that pretzel, that, that recipe comes from Bavaria. That is a Bavarian food, but you would say like kind of now that's American fair food. Like that is something that you can find at almost every American, again, sporting event or like fair. And then like kind of the same thing with the pickle. The pickle is a Jewish tradition. The pickle is a, is like a Jewish food. And yet what burger can you get that doesn't have pickles on it? Like it's kind of, it's just kind of really cool that like, like it kind of feeds into like what Malcolm was saying. Like, it doesn't matter where you come from, like your food will somehow find its way into American, like American cuisine in some way. Can you also tell me where uh, funnel cakes came from? Cause those are my favorite at fairs. <laughs> I don't know, but Starbucks has a funnel cake frat. Please don't try it. <laughs> well, there wow. goes our Starbucks sponsorship. I just went to like an anti-sponsorship. Like, this is not a paid ad. <laughs> this is the exact opposite of a paid ad. So, I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit just about uh, how important it is to maybe try to go back um, and, and trace your family roots. Um, this This whole conversation has got me wanting to do that a bit more. Um, to really trace those concretely um, and, and just remember that our ancestors came from these pretty tough situations at times. Um, and so I think it's just important to remember that. And it gives you a greater appreciation, I think, for what they dealt with and just history in general, too. Absolutely. And I think on that point, too, to me, that's what makes Frankenmuth actually quite so fascinating because we were just saying about how everything kind of comes from everywhere and then sort of becomes its own one. 
but Frankenmuth uniquely has maintained its German origin and its, uh, you know, its identity through all of this. And I think arguably, um, you know, there, we, we have some letters where there was some concerns being written back to Lohi that, uh, the, the Germans were becoming Americanized, you know, that the, the, you know, the fashion was changing, the tools were changing, they were adopting American, you know, um, traditions and that that was actually a concern for a while. And then obviously the, uh, the heritage of the German language too, and that changing in the early 20th century because of state laws and things like that too. Yet through all of this, it seems that Frankenmuth has uniquely kept their German heritage and their, that underbelly of that German identity. Why, why do you think that is here? What, think, what is it about Frankenmuth that kept that up? I think it's also like Frankenmuth in itself is a very unique place. Like you, you come downtown and you see the Bavarian architecture and obviously mm. there are different, different factors that led to Frankenmuth looking the way it does today. But I think it kind of feeds into a, a broader like Michigan sort of theme because Michigan mm. holds on to their immigrant communities very very like strongly because mm-hmm. we have towns like Frankenmuth we have towns like Westphalia and then like even Holland and Zealand on, on the west side of the state where True. these immigrant communities really hold firm into like what brought them here what they're going to hold on to because yes the Germans did Americanize and like now like not as many people in Frankenmuth learn the German language in school anymore, but it's still such a firm part of like the culture here. Like obviously they commercialize the Bavarian architecture, like I was mentioning earlier, but we still hold the Bavarian festival. We still have Oktoberfest and obviously there are great economic factors like that. They bring in a lot of money into the town, but at the same time they are celebrating their heritage and they're holding on to that. And I think it just kind of feeds into even, even broader than Michigan, like, when you have a bunch of different ethnic groups coming to America and trying to find their way in a country that was already established, it's really comfortable to sit with your own people that are like you. And it's like, it's very comforting and it's very nice to have people that you can speak the same language with and that you can share stories about your home country, whether you were from the same province in Germany or not. But like we even see that during World War II when um, German prisoners of war were sent to Michigan and then they would work on Frankenmuth Farms was that was a very comforting thing for for those German prisoners of war because they could come to Frankenmuth and speak German and talk about similarities in culture and stuff like that. So I think that's one of the main reasons why Frankenmuth has held on to that German heritage in ways maybe other immigrant communities don't. And it's fascinating to me that Frankenmuth was sort of able to do that even through World War One and World War Two, right? One of our main enemies was Germany. And so it's... Oh. Yeah. Do you know that? <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it's like to be able to hold on to that heritage while that's going on, we actually have uh, some... St- this magazine article, I think, is from Detroit Free Press in our exhibit right now. That the title of it is "It Didn't Happen Here," and it's talking about like Hitler's ideas and Nazi ideology. Sort of, it never followed the Germans here to Frankenmuth, and so to be able to to do that in, in a town and during a time while you're fighting against Germany is pretty fascinating. And I think, like, say what you about the present, but like. In the past, it was a lot more accepted to celebrate your culture. It was a lot more accepted to celebrate that heritage of you coming to the U.S. Yes, we've had a lot of issues in our history about trying to force immigrant groups to assimilate, but Frankenmuth and a lot of these other immigrant communities did it in like 
to use quotes the right way, the right American way, where they held on to their culture, but they also Americanized at the same time. Whereas, like when you're mentioning World War One and World War Two, we can look at the um, like we can compare numbers of Frankenmuth men and women who ended up serving in the armed forces with the population size, and it is a huge chunk of Frankenmuth's population. They're really they became really proud of their American, like being able to live in America, which I think is something that a lot of immigrant groups do end up um, forming is that pride to be able to live in, in this country, to be able to have left the situations that they left in that way. Like it kind of encourages them to celebrate their culture, to celebrate where they came from, but at the same time, be really proud and really happy that they are able to live in America and that their ancestors came here for them and came here to give them a better life. I wonder if part of that too, just the, the comfort to be able to do that, um, comes from maybe just the timeline, right? Like most German immigrants were probably a, a little bit before other immigrant groups, like the Irish, for example, Frankenmuth and the potato famine, those are kind of like the same exact time. So Frankenmuth may not be a great example, but for example, German groups in like Pennsylvania, um, they were coming like late seven, 1700s. And, and so it's like maybe just having that initial time to sort of establish your culture and to celebrate that and share it, um, because, I mean, when you look back at, for example, like political cartoons of like the 1800s around like when the second wave of immigration hit and a lot of Irish were coming over and stuff, you see the Irish depicted in this very nasty, uh, discriminatory way. And Germans, at least, I, I don't get the impression anyways, maybe you two have studied this more than I have, I don't know. Um, I don't get the impression that Germans were treated that same way, um, not at that same level anyway. So maybe that timeline just sort of explain some of that. And like, I, I like one of my favorite fields of history is studying religious history. And one of, the, one of the things like for better or worse, and like you have arguments about this, but America was founded as a predominantly Protestant nation. And when it comes to like comparing the Irish immigrant groups with the German immigrant groups, like we said earlier, the the original 15 Lutheran or 15 Frankenwood settlers were Lutheran missionaries. They were a Protestant missionary group, which fits into this already American established ideal of being a Protestant nation. Whereas when Irish people came over, they're coming over as Catholics and many, especially since our country's like predominant history comes from England and England's um, complete rejection of the Catholic church. Like that's, that kind of feeds into it. Whereas like maybe the Germans share a completely different culture than our, than like the established American colonies and the established American States when they, when they were starting to come over, they were Protestant. So they were like enough, they were just similar enough where it wasn't an issue. And I think that's, <laughs> you're wearing later hosen, but you don't believe in the Pope. So yeah, we can chill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, any final thoughts? I think sort of wrapping up here. I guess I'll just, uh, going back to a point Garrett made about um, just sort of community and building a community and feeling kind of that nostalgia perhaps for home. I, I, I think personally I can definitely relate to that because uh, I grew up in Canada. Uh, so for, for me, I will always identify as Canadian first. Um, and and that's just how it is. And and I know that for me, even just these little things every now and then will just get in a, give me a little shot of a serotonin, you know, just like if I drive into even to Frankenmuth, there's a couple Canadian flags on the drive mm -hmm. in. And every time I see one, I'm just like, huh. And I just get a little smile and I just go, oh, yeah, that's the Canadian flag. And I kind of go on my way. And it's a powerful thing. And so I think Garrett really hit on a, a really interesting point there. 
in terms of the Frankenmuth community um, and that tradition of German culture, is it? I think it unified them, and I think uh, I think they knew that, and I think there was uh, there was definitely a real effort to preserve that kind of unity of community um, because it's it's a powerful thing. Uh, there was there was a situation even just this last weekend where I was talking to two of my sisters who live in Montreal right now, and uh, they they were like, "Hey, can I tell you something? Because I don't have to give you any context, and we can just talk about it." I'm like, "Yeah, go ahead." And like, I think that's, that's a, a further supports the point is that, you know, sometimes it's just really helpful um, and comforting to talk to someone that you don't have to explain something like I yeah. don't have to explain why Canadians are this way or that like, oh, so just so you know, like, this is a thing Canadians do. So blah, 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 blah. You know, <laughs> um, it, th- there's a comfort in talking with people that understand your shorthand, that understand the context in, in which uh, your point is being presented or your frustration is being vented or anything like that. And I think that's mm-hmm. a really powerful thing um, that personally I could really relate to as you as you spoke about that. And, and like just to kind of further that point, I think that's why we have these little little parts of larger cities that are ethnic communities. We have even like towns like Frankenmuth where where you may be like people will be immigrating from the same country to completely separate parts of cities, but when they find out that there is a small community like Little Italy in New York or like Chinatowns and stuff like that, it's there's that incentive to move there or at least um, spend most of your time there because like Malcolm's mentioning, like you don't want to have to explain like why this bothers you, why this certain thing that happens in your workplace bothers you because like to your like probably naturalized or like native born American colleagues, like you're not, they're not going to understand like certain aspects of why it's bothering you because you'll have to explain your culture. And like, I think Malcolm hit it right on the head, just being able to have comfort in like, not having to explain things, being able to just relate to each other in a different way, yeah. I think. And I'm super privileged too, because like I speak the same language. I can I can fake being American pretty well. Like <laughs> if if you don't know I'm Canadian right out of the bat, like it it's not gonna unless it comes out in conversation. It's <laughs> random uh, a slip. Yeah, yeah. Like and even then, like especially in Michigan too, that might like go right past you and you the won't Uber. even notice it. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, definitely for, but for, you know, um, but for Germans or, you know, um, other types of, um, you know, immigrants too, it, it's connections too. It's people that speak your language. It's people that can help you find people that will help you get along too, especially as you're establishing an entirely new life. I think that's that's kind of a good way maybe to end this podcast is to try to uh, uncover those roots because they are important, right? So if, if you haven't already um, or you know someone in your family maybe that has looked into your ancestry, um, we encourage you to go back and do that. Um, and if you are from Frankenmuth, we might be able to help out a little bit with that. Um, Malcolm here can probably uncover some uh, family history for you potentially. Um so, oh, FYI, Malcolm, real quick, while you're talking about nostalgia in Canada, uh, <laughs> Shepherd, my my hometown, it uh, has a maple syrup festival in April every year. So, oh, if yeah. if you're craving, you know, so <laughs> homemade maple syrup, there you go. Um, so, I always got to have a backstock. You know, it's, a, it's a very Canadian thing. Canada actually has like an official reserve of maple syrup, yeah, so that we will never it. run out. So. You can buy gallons of it at the Maple Syrup Festival. So, well, that should at least get me through a couple breakfasts. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, thank you all for joining us on another episode of Historians and Later Hosen. Auf Wiedersehen. Wiedersehen.